Hey, good morning, everybody. If we haven't met, my name is Russell Matherly, and I'm the director of worship here at Wildwood. And what that means is normally uh, I'm the guy who's standing right there with uh, a guitar and a microphone. I feel strange not having a guitar. This is very strange. That's right. Yeah, a little bit. But uh, anyway, so we thought a while back we had conversations. We thought we'd mix things up. And uh, I love getting the opportunity to teach. I love getting the opportunity to share what God is doing in my heart. And uh, listen, here's what I need from you, okay? Because I know the only way to get better at something is to do it and then receive feedback. So here's what I want from you. When this is over, please not during, when this is over, what I want from you is your most ferocious feedback, your most critical critique that you can, I'm talking frothing at the mouth, typing emails at a thousand words per minute. Just let me have it. Give me all that you got. And the best way to get that to me the fastest is to email that to David McNeely at (laughs) Wildwood. That's, uh, That's a joke. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, really, the fastest way to get that to me is to email it to Bob Evans at Wildwood. What's that? You check your email once every six to eight weeks. Is that right, Bob? Something like that. Not that, not that often. That's right. That's a joke. I, I got David's and Bob's permission to make that joke beforehand. Sorry if that seemed mean. We're all friends here, so it's good. No, please don't do that. That would absolutely crush me. <laughs> so appreciate that. No, but I am really excited to get to share with you guys. I love getting the opportunity to teach and to share with you some of the things that God has been doing in my heart over the last couple of months and actually over the last couple of years as well. Well, what I hope you saw in the passages that Susan just read for us um, is that rather than creating lists, those passages are about us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, becoming a kind of people. Now, what I mean by that is for a lot of us, when we read the scriptures, particularly the writings in the New Testament, we have the tendency to say, well, okay, so here's a list of things God doesn't like, so let's avoid those. And, uh, and here's a list of things God does like, so I guess let's do those. Bam, Christianity. And a lot of us, we think, well, that must be it. But really what Paul is trying to do in these texts is he's trying to say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you are a Christian, over time, you become the kind of person, we become the kind of people for whom these things are natural and for whom these things are naturally avoided. So there's a lot of different things we could call that kind of people. You call it, last couple of weeks we've been looking at holiness, call it a holy people. You call it a praying people, a faithful people, an obedient people. For the next four weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at what it means for us corporately to be a worshiping people. So this week I'm going to unpack a term that we've been using called holistic worship. More on that in a minute. Uh, Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at what happens when our worship gets disordered and pointed away from God, then what happens when our worship becomes properly ordered, focused to God, and what the ultimate goal of our worship is. But for this morning, we're going to talk about worship. Now, I'm worried that what you just heard me say, when I said we're going to talk about worship, I'm worried that what you just heard me say was we're either going to talk about music or singing. But that's not what I mean. I'm worried that what you heard me say was music and singing when I said we're going to talk about worship. Not that music and singing aren't a part of worship. They absolutely are. But I'm worried that for many of us, we have too small 
or too like zoomed in or too myopic a view of worship. Well, what we need is a larger, more zoomed out, holistic view of worship. So over the next couple of weeks, if every time someone on this stage says the word worship, if what you hear every time is music and singing, it's going to be kind of confusing. Here's what I mean. Let me explain this a different way. Uh, I'm going to let you guys in on some Maverly intel here, okay? This is, this is not something that I tell to everybody. Now, yes, I'm telling all of you. Yes, I'm telling all of you online or watching this later. Hi. Yes, I am sharing this with the 11 o'clock service. But other than that, I don't just tell this to everybody, okay? And this is true, by the way. This isn't just like a preacher story that's like 40% true. This is actually true. Not all preacher stories are that way. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? This is actually true. I cannot ride a bicycle. Now, I'm worried that what you just heard me say, when I said, I cannot ride a bicycle, I'm worried what you heard me say was, I don't know how to ride a bicycle. That's not what I mean. You see, I know how to ride a bicycle. Because if you don't know how to do something, all you need is just like better information or a better teacher. Crying out loud, Maverly, it's 2021. YouTube it. If you don't know how to do something, Google it. It's there. You'll find it. But that's not the problem. The problem's not that I don't know how. I've learned how multiple times from actual bicyclists. I have the information. I've been taught. See, about a year or so ago for Fourth of July, Kristen's family was in town with us. It was her mom and her dad and her brother and her brother's wife. And uh, they said, when they came down, they said, Russell, they know this about me. They said, this is going to be it. This is going to be the week where you ride a bicycle. There's like 70% of my brain that was like, yeah, this is a great idea. There's like 30% of my brain that was like, no, this is a terrible idea. Turns out I should have listened to that, but here we are. So what ended up happening was on the evening of the 4th of July, we get out on the road in front of my house and it's Kristen's dad on one side, her brother on another side, me in the middle on this bike, just falling to and fro like a baby giraffe, still trying to figure it out. And it it was just, it was bright outside. There were cars driving by as I was doing this. Just like, what is his problem? And, and, and the worst part about it all was Kristen's dad or Kristen's brother, who were just doing their best, were saying things like, no, 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 Russell, you need to do this, this way. And I would say, I am doing this. The problem is when I put that information to practice on a bicycle, the result doesn't come. It's like taking a broken calculator and being like two plus two equals seven. There's just like nothing to be done. That's like me on a bicycle, okay? It's not that I don't have the information. I have the information. It's not that I don't have the right teachers. I've had the good teachers. It's that I can't ride a bike. Now, if you hear me saying, I don't know how to ride a bike, it's going to be confusing. Over the next couple of weeks, if you hear us saying music and singing, when we say worship, it's going to be confusing. Now, again, not that music and singing aren't a part of worship or that they're not good. It absolutely is. It's my job. I love getting to do this. This is really important for all of us to do. I'm just saying it's not the whole thing. So let's talk about holistic worship. I mentioned that term earlier. It's a great SAT word, holistic worship. And all I mean by that is it's all-encompassing, okay? It's all integrated. In uh, the passage we read earlier from Romans, Romans 12 and verse 1, it said to offer your bodies 
as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual worship. In other words, the way you live your life is your worship. Now here around Wildwood, some of the language that we use around worship uh, as a topic and, and what we call that in our mission strategy, moving hearts, we get a lot of that language from a pastor in Atlanta. His name is Louis Giglio. We believe it's really um, uh, the best summary of what the Bible teaches about worship. So the definition we use around here for Christian worship from Louis Giglio in his little book, The Air I Breathe, he's just a master at taking really complex ideas and just boiling them down. He says this, worship is thanking God for who he is and what he's done. There you go, Christian worship. But see, it's not just the isolated incidents where we thank God for who he is and what he's done. In other words, and, and Louis builds this case, Louis Giglio builds this case out in his book. It's living your life in a way that thanks God for who he is and what he's done. That's what Christian worship is. But now this probably won't come as a shock to many of you, but not everybody in the world is a Christian. Now you may have heard, whether it's pastors or preachers or whoever from this stage, say something along the lines of something like, everybody worships something. Another way to say that is, uh, everybody is a worshiper. So what do we mean by that? Well, the first thing I want us to see this morning about worship is that worship is human. There's a philosopher named Blaise Pascal who said, and and hang with me, this quote is really wordy, but we'll kind of uh, dial it down afterward. Blaise Pascal says, he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in the things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. You've heard this quote simplified to say, there's a God-shaped hole in the heart of every person. There is a God-shaped hole in the heart of every person. See, that's what we mean when we say that everybody worships something. Everybody who's ever lived, currently living, or ever will live wants their lives to count for something. We want at the end of our days to say, look, my life mattered, and I spent my life devoted to whatever it is. So when we find something to devote ourselves towards, in other words, when we try to use that thing to fit into the God-shaped hole in our heart, whatever it is, that is what we worship. And we rearrange everything, our time, our resources, our money, our relationships, everything, our habits and practices around whatever it is we find to fill that God-shaped hole. Lou Giglio again says, whatever you become obsessed with, you imitate. And whatever you imitate, you become. In other words, whatever you value most will ultimately determine who you are. Second thing I want us to see, not only is worship human in that we all do it, but worship is formational. Put another way, when we worship, our habits and our patterns of life become pointed towards something Our lives follow suit, whether we realize it or not. There's a philosopher named James K.A. Smith who wrote an absolutely incredible, just masterpiece of a book called You Are What You Love. And in that book, he says this, the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. I might be learning to love a telos, and by telos, he just means ultimate goal. 
I might be learning to love a telos or ultimate goal that I'm not even aware of and that nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. Put another way, the truth is that we may be worshiping something we're not even aware of. And not just worshiping, we may be being formed by something that we're not even aware of. This can happen on a subconscious level. You've heard the old adage before that says, show me your wallet or show me your planner or show me your calendar and I'll show you what you really care about. That's true, isn't it? And we know that we've all had interactions with people who say, man, I am really sold out for whatever it is. Then you look at their life and you say, well, it doesn't really look like it. You don't seem to be. Your, your habits and your patterns and what you're becoming, the person you are, doesn't really seem to be pointed in that direction, even though you might think that's the case. Zachary, it's a problem. If for the Christian we worship God, we become more like him if worship is formational. But that means for everything else, those who don't worship God, those who are not filling that God-shaped hole with God himself, everyone else is becoming those things that they worship. Let's do a quick case study of this real quick. Let's talk about the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, for a lot of us, when we read the Old Testament, if you're anything like me, it's really easy to look on one page, take this for example, where the Israelites are standing on the shore and God splits the ocean in half. Which like, by the way, just as an aside, I I don't even know what I would do if I were standing on that shoreline and all of a sudden the ocean split in half and God said, here you go, imminent death behind me and God provides a way. I cannot even imagine what my reaction would be. But you see this and you see the faithfulness of God in every page. You see what God does for his people, and then you flip over the next page, and they're complaining because they're hungry. Seriously? On one page, God splits the ocean in half for you, and the next page, you're complaining because you want chicken nuggets? What in the world, guys? But it gets worse. You flip over a couple of more pages, and now the people of Israel are becoming violent, like the other nations around them. They know they're not supposed to do that. A couple of more pages, they're committing just obscene acts of sexual immorality. You know you're not supposed to do that. A couple of more pages, finally, they're offering sacrifices to other gods. You say, guys, how how did you lose the plot this bad? How did this happen? You're the people of God. Look at what he did for you. How did you become like this? And we know the truth. It's not that the people of Israel just woke up one morning and said, hey, you know that offering sacrifices to Molech things? I always thought that was interesting. Let's carve out some time this afternoon and do that. No, it doesn't happen that way. What happens is slowly but surely, Over time, what is in here will work itself out here, whether we're aware of it or not. And that happens time after time with the people of Israel. There's more examples we got. I'm not trying to pick on them, but. And the name for this phenomenon in the Bible is a word called idolatry. Now, idolatry just means worship of anything that isn't God. When the idol, when the thing that we try to force into that God-shaped hole is not God himself, we will become like those things. Biblical scholar G.K. Beale says this, the principle is this, if we worship idols, we will become like the idols. And that likeness will ruin us. Now this gets teased out in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Pay attention to what the psalmist is saying here. 
says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Listen to this. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. That's idolatry. Now, when we start talking about something like idolatry, a lot of people think, well, okay, I guess that makes sense. But like, I don't have a shrine in my backyard, right? Like I haven't melted down all the gold or silver in my house or whatever and put it as a statue in my closet that I bow to or sing chants to or burn incense to. So I'm good, right? Like a lot of us think as long as we don't do the weird stuff, that we're not guilty of idolatry. Well, the Apostle Paul in the first chapter of Romans kind of deflates that idea. He's talking about people who exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then he says they worshipped the creation instead of the creator. In other words, they worship created things Whatever those things are, which may in and of themselves be good things, but they worship them instead of worshiping God. That is idolatry. So whatever it is, we're trying to fit into that God-shaped hole within our hearts that isn't God. We will become like that thing. And that, if it's not God, is idolatry. So you may be asking, well, okay, I mean, that makes sense, but but, but what's at stake here? Well, let's go back to our passage from Ephesians 5 that we read earlier. Take the tack out of that one. Let's go back there. In Ephesians 5, what does he say? Paul encourages us to make the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered why Paul uses the word evil there? Right, because I think for a lot of us, this passage is just something we've read before. We've heard it before a million times. We turn right by, hey, the days are evil, got it, move on. That's normal. I mean, that's, that's what we all do to some degree. But have you ever wondered why Paul uses the word evil? And the reason I ask that is because I think, I don't know this, but I think, if we were to poll the room, in other words, we were to send someone with a microphone to every single person in the room, don't worry, we're not going to do that, introverts, relax. But if we were to do that, go around the room, I, I bet, I, I don't know, but I bet, most of us would probably say, well, you know, there, there are some things that I don't like going on. There's some things I don't agree with. There, there's some things going on I definitely can't get behind. But I don't know, most of the days are pretty good. Not great, but pretty good. Maybe inconvenient at worst. Right, that's what I would say. But Paul here takes it a step even further, uses even stronger language than that, and says, the days are evil. So you may be asking yourself, well, what is it that's evil about the days? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, don't worry about turning there, we're going to have it up on the screen. In Ephesians 6, in the context here, he's talking about putting on the whole armor of God. Verse 12, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Two things I want to pull from this passage. The first thing I want to talk about, and this may seem like kind of a side tangent, but it it feels important to say. The first thing Paul points out in this passage is that the problem is not other people. The problem is not other people. Now, instantly, you might have the reaction to say, okay, but you don't know what so-and-so did to me. When she said this or when he did this to me and my family, when, when he left and he pulled the rug out from under us, you don't know how badly that hurt. And I realize that. I get that. Listen, Paul is not trying to say that there's no such thing as a person who does an evil thing. I want to be clear. Paul is very much aware that people do terrible things to each other. I'm very much aware that people do terrible things to each other. There are some absolutely demonic agendas at work in our world today that are perpetrated by people. I'm not trying to say they aren't. Paul's not trying to say they aren't. But what he is saying is when you take that evil, whatever it is, and you boil it down to its core, you get back to its origin, when you get down there, you will not find flesh and blood. That's because the second thing Paul's trying to show us in this text is actually our enemy, while it's not other people, our enemy is actually far worse and far more diabolical than any of us would like to imagine. Look at the language he uses here. Against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I, trust me, I know When we start talking about this, for some of you, your reaction might be to say, are we seriously about to start talking about demons and devils? I mean, really, like like that is so pre-modern, that is so antiquated, we know that's not the way the world works. That is so irrelevant, Russell, what does this have to do with anything? And listen, I get that. And in fact, there are some days, if I'm being perfectly honest, where my inner skeptic wins and he says that. So I get it. But look, as people who submit ourselves to Jesus and submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture, for Jesus and the authors of Scripture, these things were real. They weren't metaphors. They weren't myths. This was a reality that we don't like to think about. And that's because this morning, not only is our worship human, in other words, everyone does it, not only is our worship formational, but thirdly, our worship is spiritual warfare. Now, when I say the word spiritual warfare, you may get images that come to your mind of heads spinning around 360 or crawling up on walls backwards. That's, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not a thing. It is a thing. Who knows? Maybe we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. Come back and find out. I'm just kidding. But that's not what I'm talking about. But what I, what I mean by that, when I say spiritual warfare, here, here's what I mean. When you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, declare to follow Jesus, when we gather in a room like this, when we publicly, corporately worship together, when we commit ourselves to ridding our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit of sin and pursuing holiness, you're not just doing good things that are probably good for Christian people to do. 
No, in reality, what you're doing is you are looking these cosmic forces of darkness in the face and the Satan himself in the face, and you are saying, I'm not going your way anymore. I'm going his way. I am no longer living my life according to you. I'm living my life according to him. And when we do that, do you think that we have an enemy who says, well, fair is fair. Agree to disagree. I'll just waltz over to the lake of fire and throw myself in. No, of course not. No, scripture says he wants to destroy you. He hates you. And see, their goal by using these idols is to pull your worship away from God by any means necessary, and they will stop at nothing to see that that gets done by distracting you and by luring you away, trying to prevent your worship to getting to God and forming you into the image of those idols. See, those idols that we were talking about earlier are not just neutral now, things in and of themselves are not bad, but worship of those things is bad when we trust in them. And just to make matters worse, in this fight, which by the way, you may have heard a term in the last couple of decades uh, called the worship wars, which typically refers to different styles of music. Can, can, can we all just agree here this morning that, that that's kind of a silly discussion in comparison to what we're talking about here? In this battle for our worship, to make matters worse, you and I are, when, when left to our own devices, on our own, we are powerless to resist the pull from these idols. There is no weapon you could bring to the fight. There's no personal piety. There's no good deeds. There's no amount of zeros at the end of your bank account. There's no job performance. There's no look how squeaky clean and tidy my family is. There, there's none of that. No personal history you could ever bring to the table on your own that would ever be strong enough to resist these spiritual forces of darkness. In that fight, you and I on our own, we lose 10 times out of 10. So you may be asking, what hope is there? What, what weapon is there that could be used in this fight? If you've been around here for a while, we sing a song sometimes on Sunday mornings, and one of the lyrics in the song that we sing is, my weapon is a melody. See, it's not a weapon that we craft. It's not a gun. It's not a sword. It's not a tank. It's not a bomb. It's a song. It's a word. It's a proclamation that 2,000 years ago a baby was born. And that baby grew to become a man. And that man healed the sick. He made the blind to see. He made the dead raise and the lame to walk. And he overturned corrupted systems of government, corrupted systems of religion. And just to pour salt in the wound, he did it because he said he was God and he was. So they hated him for it. And they conspired against him and had him tried and illegally executed. They murdered him by putting him up on a cross. 
And they thought they had pulled the decisive victory in that moment over God. But see, what they didn't realize was on the day where Jesus drew his last breath, in that moment on his death on the cross, he emptied those idols and those spiritual forces of darkness of their powers forever. He won that for you and he won that for me on the cross. But the story doesn't end there. Because on the third day, the Spirit of God raised the Son of God to life, putting the exclamation mark on the sentence that Jesus is king. And listen to me, if Jesus is king, your idols aren't. They have no power over you anymore. They have no power over us. Jesus won that for us in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. And yet... Though the Christian life is a life of victory, basking in the glory of what Jesus won on the cross, the war is over. And yet, enemy outposts still remain. And yet, another way to say that is the Christian life is hard. So how can we be a worshiping people? How can we resist the tug and the pull and the temptation of those idols that so easily ensnare us and entangle us? When Romans 12, again, Paul says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, something that happens by the Holy Spirit. And he also encourages us later to keep in step with the Spirit. How do we do that? Well, there's tons of ways that we could talk about, tons of spiritual disciplines or practices we could talk about to become holistic worshipers. For the purpose of time this morning, I'm going to talk about three. The first thing we do is a kind of counter-formational practice to be formed into the image of God and not into the image of idols by the power of the Holy Spirit. The first thing we do is we hear the word together. We hear the word, we hear the scriptures read. It is so important for you as an individual Christian to get alone with the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit. Yes, amen, that is vital for your spiritual life. But there's something special that happens when we come together and submit ourselves to the Scriptures. Hebrews 4 says the Word of God is living and active, especially when we hear it together. Second thing we do is we participate in communion. We take communion together. Now, when we do that, when we take communion, it's kind of, you could think of it as a way of living into the story of Good Friday. Now, what I don't mean by that is it's not a literal reenactment. We're not literally crucifying Jesus again, or when we take the elements, they're not literally becoming the body and the blood. We don't believe that. But just to say that communion is is just remembrance and nothing more really doesn't seem to go far enough. See, because to remember something, you just write it down. You just recall it to mind later. You just think about it. That's all you have to do. But in communion, we do something different. We do that, but we also stand together. We come down to the front together. We stand in line together. We receive the elements together. We confess our sins together and receive God's forgiveness together. Then we spend the next five or six minutes fumbling with the little plastic thing on the top trying to get the thing open. Together. But seriously, there's something so powerful when we see those around us participating and receiving the benefits of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. 
we take communion together. The third thing is this. We talked about it earlier a little bit. As a part of our worship, we sing together. In preparing for this teaching, I read an article from the BBC. And it was written about a year ago, so it was looking at the early lockdowns and the ways that some people would cope. One of the ways that researchers found was through singing. Now, after today, I would really encourage you to do some homework and some research on this because it's, it's incredible what people are finding. But what they found was one of the ways to cope was that people would sing. What researchers are finding is that when you sing, actually your brain chemistry is being reconfigured. And especially that is true when we stand together and we sing together as one voice. There are things happening that we don't even see in our brains, firing and creating relationships with people. That's why when you walk out of a football game after singing the fight song, you feel like you're leaving with almost 80,000 of your best friends because in some way, you kind of are. So imagine what happens when that is true and we stand to sing of the greatest truth there has ever been. Now, what I'm not saying here is that, see, all the science stuff over here, this disproves all your religion. No, it's the opposite of what I'm saying. See, because if I were to show this study to a Christian who lived about 2,000 years ago, the response I would get is, well, duh. I didn't need a study to tell you, of course that's how God would set this up. Like I said, there's plenty more that we could have talked about. But ways of regularly keeping in step with the Spirit, regularly resisting the pull from the idols and the spiritual forces of darkness, we hear the word read together, we, we, we take communion together, and we sing together. So, this morning, to close, I want to offer up two invitations. The first invitation is if you uh, are here or listening or watching this and you wouldn't consider yourself to be a follower that is a worshiper of Jesus, that as you say, in that God-shaped hole in my heart, I, I, uh, Jesus is not filling it, and I know that. I just have three questions I want to ask. And, and, and please, hear my heart on this. I, these questions are not intended as zingers or gotchas. They're just some questions. First question is this. If you wouldn't consider yourself to be a worshiper of Jesus, what is it that you do worship? On a gut level, genuine, honest level, what is it you do worship? What is it you are trying to fit into that God-shaped hole? And the second question, where has that gotten you? How has that worked out in your life? The third question is, what would happen if Jesus filled that God-shaped hole? What would happen? What would change in your life if by the power of the Holy Spirit you resisted the pull of the idols and you followed and worshipped Jesus and Him alone? Now, the second invitation this morning is to those of us in the room who would call ourselves followers and worshipers of Jesus. Not perfect. No one's perfect. But we're actively, by the power of the Holy Spirit, trying to live our lives as a way of holistic worship to God. And the invitation for us this morning is that we would say, as the psalmist says, Search me, O God, 
and find in me anything that isn't worshiping you. Find in me all of the ways I am trying to put a grip on my idols. And would you, by the power of your spirit, break that grip and gently turn my focus back to you. By the power of your spirit, by the will of the Father, by the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. In a minute, you're going to have the opportunity to put this into practice. In a minute, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing together. And you have the invitation to join and sing together as an act of worship to King Jesus, because he is worthy.